The Holy Gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, o Christ. You may be seated. So this past Thursday, I celebrated the 15th anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood. And since I practiced law for 21 years before becoming a priest, I figure I have at least six more years of active ministry ahead of me so that I can fully atone for all my sins as a lawyer. <laughs> but then again, you Lutherans tell me that such quid pro quo thinking is misguided works righteousness talk and that my faith in Christ has me covered no matter what I do. That's just another reason why I love hanging out with you guys so much. God's grace is amazing indeed. In all seriousness, as I alluded to in my sermon last Sunday, discerning a call to ordained ministry was one of the most interesting, grace-filled, and astonishing things I have done in my life. It involved prayer, reflection, conversation, attentiveness, patience, support from loved ones and the community, hard work, and most especially the transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. What you may not appreciate, however, is that this activity of discerning a call is by no means restricted to those of us in ordained life. The truth is that every baptized person, every single one of us gathered here this morning, is being called by Christ into his service, sometimes within the formal structures of the church, sometimes outside of them. And this dynamic of call and response is, of course, what this morning's gospel text is all about. So let's see what we can learn from it about the nature of call. 
The scene of our story is uh, Capernaum, the little town by the Sea of Galilee that is the home of two pairs of brothers, Peter and Andrew on the one hand, and James and John on the other. It is, in a sense, the birthplace of Christian community because it is here, as we just heard, that these first four disciples were called to follow Jesus. And as we learn later in Matthew's Gospel, it is in and around Capernaum that the evangelist Matthew, too, will eventually be called away from his work as a tax collector to become another one of Jesus' disciples. Now, one thing intriguing about these call stories in the Gospels is just how spare they are in their detail. I find myself wanting to know so much more. Do these first disciples follow Jesus because they have previously heard about him and have been drawn by Jesus' teaching and personal charisma? Or is this their very first encounter with him? The text is ambiguous on the point. Matthew describes the scene as if there is no struggle or hesitation in the brother's decision to follow. Yet surely there must have been some conversation between and among them and their families before making such a momentous decision. Now the traditional take on the scene is that it, in their immediate decision to follow Jesus, it's a model of faithful and obedient discipleship. But we should probably take care not to so sentimentalize the story. The one thing that their subsequent conduct teaches us is that just like you and me, Peter, Andrew, James, and John are confused and broken people who often have little clue as to what Jesus is up to, frequently misunderstand him, and often act out of selfish or, at a minimum, mixed motives. The truth is we really don't know what was running through their minds at this pivotal moment when they decide to follow him. For all we know, the brothers may have seized this chance to follow Jesus, not because they thought he was the Son of God, but because they were dying to escape the monotonous life of fishing every day or living in this small, dreary town. I mean, who wouldn't? I doubt that their future in this tiny village held much promise. Honestly, the character in this story that plays on my sympathies the most is poor Zebedee. James and John's father. He's the one that's left behind. The text is ambiguous here, too, as to whether Jesus' invitation to follow is extended just to the sons, James and John, or whether it was intended to include Zebedee, the dad, as well. But surely, if there is one thing we know about Jesus, is that he always errs on the side of inclusion rather than exclusion. So I somehow suspect that Jesus would have welcomed Zebedee as a disciple if he wanted to come along. Yet Matthew tells us that Zebedee stays behind. This I actually understand. Maybe it is because I'm a father myself, I don't know. But I can much more easily put myself in Zebedee's shoes than any of the other characters in the story. Zebedee, no doubt, had worked long and hard to build his little fishing business to buy or build his own boat, to raise his two boys with his wife Salome, 
And like most fathers, he probably dreamed that his boys would someday take over his fishing business. And he probably also hoped that they would stick around and take care of Zebedee and Salome, and maybe even give them grandkids. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to go, right? And so Zebedee should be forgiven, I think, if he may have been just a little angry or resentful under these circumstances, being abandoned by his boys so that they might follow this upstart rabbi on God knows what kind of an adventure. It all must have seemed a little reckless to him. Like a good and responsible father, Zebedee was probably more worried about who was going to put bread on the table than the promise of this amorphous thing called the kingdom of heaven. So why does Jesus do this? Why does he ask Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him when he can see that this means breaking a family apart, leaving a mother and father stranded, disrupting a family's business? Well, as I was suggesting to the children, an important clue, I think, can be found in the simple words of Jesus' invitation. Follow me and I will make you fish for people. Jesus' very first utterance about discipleship is not about becoming a teacher of the gospel or an activist for the kingdom, but he speaks of becoming fishers of people. More than just a clever play on words, Jesus is telling us something important about what it means to follow him. He is calling these first disciples not into work, but into relationship. He is telling them to put down what they are doing, to put down their nets, to set aside their boats, and to focus instead on the people around them. Jesus, you see, is calling his followers towards a form of human connection that is even more primary than work, even more basic than family. Jesus is calling them and us into a beloved community of relationship that transcends the boundaries of family, tribe, profession, class, race, or any of the other ways we tend to divide up the world. Just as the Godhead itself is a perfectly loving union of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Greek Orthodox have this beautiful image of the Trinity in a circle, dancing, holding hands. This community, this loving relationship, this is what we are being called into, a new and inclusive form of human community that is to mirror the divine reality of a joyful dance. These disciples do not yet know it at this point in their journey, but Jesus will soon be teaching them what it means to behave like such a beloved community. And as we know, because we've read ahead in the story, it means bearing each other's burdens. It means caring for the vulnerable. It means feeding the hungry. It means helping each other through thick and thin, and always through the power of God's abundant grace. Sometimes that call to be in Christ-shaped 
relationship with each other will take us far from home. And sometimes it will take shape in and among the persons right around us. But this call to love will always involve persons, not simply a mission or a ministry or a movement, but actual flesh and blood persons, each of whom is a beloved child of God. Yes, we are called by God into our work, but perhaps even more fundamentally, we are called into particular relationships that are generative, supportive, life-giving, and most of all, loving. So my invitation to you today is this. Listen prayerfully to the myriad ways in which Christ is calling you right now into new, healthier, and more expansive relationships. What stranger does Christ want you to help? What friend does Christ want you to support? Whose pain or hunger can you relieve? Might Christ be inviting you to let go of that anger or that grudge and mend a broken relationship or reconcile with an enemy? And by all means, don't forget about your relationship with yourself, which for many of us is often the most problematic of all. We tend to be our own worst critics. We think we don't deserve to be loved. But guess what? For Christ, he wants you to love yourself in the very same unconditional and forgiving way he loves you. All of these relationships with others, with ourselves, with God, require a Christ-like attention because they are foundational to our identities as followers of Jesus, as fishers of people. None of this is to say, I hasten to add, that Christ is not also calling us into certain forms of kingdom-building work and certain forms of kingdom-building kingdom activism, for he most surely is. But it is to say that none of that work is possible unless and until we first answer the call to love the people God sends our way. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon from Holy Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church in Newington, New Hampshire, part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. You can find us at htelc.com. And don't forget, you are loved.